This I recall to my mind, therefore I have hope. The Lord's loving kindnesses indeed never cease, for his compassions never fail. They are new every morning. Great is thy faithfulness. The Lord is my portion, says my soul, therefore I have hope in him. The Lord is good to those who wait for him, to the person who seeks him. It is good that he waits silently for the salvation of the Lord. Father, we come to you in the name of Christ, who has brought us that salvation. We are just blessed every day as we're reminded that your faithfulness is great each and every day. And Lord, we know that you are unchanging. You're the God who uh, created us and loves us and sent your son to die for us and has prepared eternity for for us as your children. And Lord, we know none of it is as the result of our effort or our merit. It's all done by Jesus Christ. And so, Lord, we come to you this morning asking that your word will be clear to us, that you will teach us, you will instruct us, you will inspire us, you will touch us according to our individual needs this day, that you might be glorified. In Christ's name we pray. Amen. If you'll turn to 2 Samuel chapter 12, I'd like to read verses 24 and 25. This is where we left off last Sunday. Then David comforted his wife Bathsheba and went into her and lay with her, and she gave birth to a son, and he named him Solomon. Now the Lord loved him and sent word through Nathan the prophet, and he named him Jedidiah for the Lord's sake. Now, of course, we know that those verses fall uh, at the end of a very difficult passage of uh, Scripture, a couple of chapters, 11th and 12th chapters here. And we've just worked through the issue of David's profound intercession on behalf of his baby son. You remember it was because of David's intentional and blatant sin that it caused many to blaspheme the name of the Lord that the Lord had said through the prophet Nathan that the child born of Bathsheba shall die. And we talked a little bit about that and, and how it was really an expression of God's mercy even in the death of the son of this baby and, and how all that uh, works out. But David was heartbroken at the news that this would happen and therefore he passionately interceded with the Lord on behalf of his son. And I think one of the greatest truths that comes to us from that is, is belief that the Lord is merciful no matter what. And, and even though the word had come from the prophet of the Lord, the child shall die, David says, well, but maybe, maybe the Lord will have mercy and therefore I will intercede on behalf of this child. When the baby died, we discover that rather than mourning and weeping and wailing as the pagans did, David accepted it as the answer to God's prophecy, as the fulfillment of God's prophecy, as the chastisement that was due to him for his great sin. And he halted his intercession. He stopped his fast and he set about his neglected duties. And one of the very first duties was to comfort his wife Bathsheba. And this is where we ended up uh, last week. Uh, we noted that she had had a terrible year. The previous year up to this moment of time, the Beth, death of the child, been a horrible year in her life and we spelled out how that was so. And certainly she was shattered by the loss of her firstborn son. 
Because David had comforted him in the midst of this as he had spent his whole week on his face before God interceding for this child, God had comforted him through all of that. And he had experienced the fulfillment of the comfort of God in himself. And so as he went to Bathsheba, he was able to share the comfort that he had received from God with her. And he, prepared, he was prepared to minister to his wife, even in the midst of their common distress. That even desire, desire to comfort her is, is interesting because, as we're going to see when we get into the 13th chapter, sometimes when men have their way with a woman, they, they turn against them and, and reject them. But in this particular case, we discover David really loved his wife Bathsheba, and he does not blame her for their pain. Instead, what we discover as we read these two verses this morning, he laid with her not only as an expression of his love for her, but hoping certainly to, that a child would come to replace the one that had died. David's hopes were fulfilled. Nine months later, like we're assuming nine months, that's more or less the common time, she gave birth to a son, and they named him Solomon, which means man of peace. His name was prophetic in one way because although David had established this great empire by war, Solomon would inherit an empire that had its borders were secure, internally it was at peace, and so Solomon would experience a reign of 40 years of relative peace. And of course, in that period of peace, he would go ahead and build the, the temple of the Lord, for example. But the name Solomon also expressed the fact that he had been conceived after David had made his peace with God. So he was a man of peace in that he was conceived after David had, had been through the horror of his year of rebellion and had come back to God and, and established his peace with him. And so in two ways, Solomon was a man of peace. What we find here in this passage is the Lord again sends the prophet Nathan to David. Now, the last time the prophet Nathan came, he pointed his finger at David and said, you are the man, you're the man of sin and of vileness here. But this time, he comes and blesses them, telling them that God had blessed their marriage and that God was accepting this son, that, that son that was to be born of them, and that he accepted them. God had forgiven their sin. They had accepted the chastisement of God and had not again rebelled against him. And God blessed the marriage with the birth of the future king. Nathan emphasized God's loving acceptance of this child by giving him the name Jedediah, which means beloved of the Lord. So they named him Solomon. Nathan named him Jedediah. The name Solomon, of course, would prevail and would be the name given uh, to the David's successor as king over Israel. The name Solomon would be very popular. It's a very popular name in the Muslim world. There's a lot of Suleiman, Suleimans, that's the uh, Arabic version of it. In fact, one of the greatest rulers of history was named Suleiman, the magnificent Solomon the Great. He was a Turkish sultan. And so the name Solomon usually is connected with wealth and peace and uh, temple building and so forth, especially to those who are familiar with Scripture. Well, sometimes, sometime between the events that you read in the 13th verse here 
of 2 Samuel where David admits that he had sinned against God. And the 23rd verse here, when the child dies, I think somewhere in that time frame was where David penned what is often considered to be the greatest of all the Psalms, Psalm 51. Let's turn to Psalm 51. Like to look at it for a few minutes because it is a very profound piece of scripture. You are aware, of course, of reading the Psalms that Psalms frequently have, and almost all of them have, a superscription, a little statement that uh, is above the Psalm before it begins. And in this case, we read A contrite sinner's prayer for pardon. For the choir director, a Psalm of David, when Nathan the prophet came to him after he had gone into Bathsheba. And so it's directly connected to David's sin with Bathsheba and his murder of Uriah and his attempted cover-up, which went on for nearly a year. While superscriptions on the beginning of Psalms are not, to believed, are not believed to be part of inspired scripture, they are not considered to be part of the text necessarily inspired uh, by God, uh, they do go back a very long time. These are not recent additions. You will find these superscriptions clear back in the Septuagint version, which, go, which was uh, translated out of the Hebrew into the Greek uh, 100 to 200 years before Christ. And so these superscriptions are at least 2,200 years old and certainly older than that as you go, uh, because the Septuagint didn't invent all these things, the, the translators didn't invent these superscriptions. So although they are believed to be later additions to the text, they are very ancient and therefore should be taken very seriously. The undeniable importance of this psalm rests primarily on it, the fact that it is a peerless expression of the doctrine of repentance. Nowhere in scripture will you find a better expression of the doctrine of repentance. Uh, if you study the psalms, you'll discover that there are seven psalms which are known as the penitential psalms. And this is one of them. Psalm 6, Psalm 32, Psalm 38, and then right in the middle is Psalm 51. Then you have Psalm 102, Psalm 130, and one, Psalm 143. So it's right in the middle of these seven psalms. Now all of those psalms except two of them, that's 102 and 130, are written by David. So David was very much into writing penitential psalms, uh, a man who expressed his repentance maybe more clearly than most. But Psalm 51 seems to stand out above the other penitential psalms in many ways. Nowhere in Scripture is there a clearer statement of our utter dependence upon God's mercy for salvation. Utter dependence. That there is nothing that you or I can do to merit God's love, to merit His blessing, to merit His forgiveness. Nothing. We cannot do anything. We cannot do like the Hindus do, and, and that's draw themselves up and then lay prostrate and then stand where their head was and lay prostrate again all around a big mountain in expression of, of repentance or whatever, hoping that the gods will be happy with them. We, we cannot do any of those things because it is unmerited. And so to me, Psalm 51 is like a giant spiritual washcloth. So let's read uh, a few of the verses to begin with, the first nine verses of the psalm. 
I'll go ahead and read it in the NASB translation, even though I don't like the thous and the these and the thys, which are still there, but I'll just read it that way. Be gracious to me, O God, according to thy loving kindness. According to the greatness of thy compassion, blot out my transgressions. Wash me thoroughly from my sin, my iniquity, and cleanse me from my sin. For I know my transgressions, and my sin is ever before me. Against thee, thee only, have I sinned and done what is evil in thy sight, so that thou art justified when thou dost speak and blameless when thou dost judge. Behold, I was brought forth in iniquity, and in sin my mother conceived me. Behold, thou dost desire truth in the innermost being, and in the hidden part thou wilt make me know wisdom." Purify me with hyssop, and I shall be clean. Wash me, and I shall be whiter than snow. Make me to hear joy and gladness. Let the bones which thou hast broken rejoice. Hide thy face from my sins, and blot out my iniquities. The very first verse of this passage of Scripture speaks of our total dependence upon God for His for graciousness, for loving kindness, and compassion. Be gracious to me, O God, according to thy loving kindness, according to the greatness of thy compassion, blot out my transgressions. Notice it doesn't say, according to the fact that I'm a really good guy, according to the fact I didn't kick my dog yesterday, according to the fact that I have done this, that, or the other thing, it's, it, it simply says, according to your loving kindness according to your compassion. It's all according to God. The next verses in this psalm acknowledge personal sin and offer no excuse. David offers no excuse. He doesn't say here, oh Lord, forgive me for my sin because, you know, I'm weak and, and I, I'm, I, you know, uh, this, this lady tempted me or, or, or whatever. He doesn't make any excuses. He sinned and there is no excuse. All I can do is cast myself, Lord, on your compassion and your loving kindness. And, and the scripture here makes it very, very clear that our need to be washed and cleansed from sin is an imperative. It's not an option. We must be cleansed of our sin in order to experience God's presence and his blessing in our lives. And of course, we must be cleansed from our sin in the beginning to even become the child of God. And then once we are a child of God, that constant cleansing needs to be there for us to know His blessing and to have Him hear our prayer and answer when we cry unto Him. What's interesting here is that this passage of Scripture also acknowledges original sin. It says in verse 5, I was brought forth in iniquity and in sin my mother conceived me. He's not saying there that my mother was a harlot and therefore I was conceived by her. He's not saying his mother was a sinner in, in the conception. He was saying, he's saying that he was born into a sin-sick world. He's a child of Adam and as such he had inherited the sin nature of the human race. And in verse, the, the reference in verse 7 to purification with hyssop, there is a direct allusion to the Passover direct allusion to the Passover. 
Because you remember when Moses was given the command by God that uh, the angel was going to pass over there in Egypt and only where the blood had been spread over the doors would the angel pass over that house and not bring death to the eldest son. That blood was to be spread on the doorpost with hyssop. The, the plant and its leaves was dipped in the blood and was used as a brush to paint the blood, spread the blood of the lamb over the doorposts of the Hebrew home. So hyssop symbolizes the cleansing process, is sort of the washcloth, if you will, because it was used to spread the blood for the forgiveness of sin. And it, what's interesting is it is in the truth that this symbolizes that we have the most profound linking of the Old and the New Testaments together. That is, it is only by blood, that we, the shedding of blood, that we have the forgiveness of sin. Let me uh, read from Hebrews chapter 9, where this is stated expressly. Hebrews chapter 9, verse 18. Therefore, even the first covenant was not inaugurated without blood, for when every commandment had been spoken by Moses to all the people according to the law, he took the blood of the calves and goats with water and scarlet wool and hyssop and sprinkled both the book itself and all the people, saying, This is the blood of the covenant which God commanded you. And in the same way, he sprinkled both the tabernacle and all the vessels of the ministry with the blood. And according to the law, one must almost say, all things are cleansed with blood, and without shedding of blood there is no forgiveness. So whether it be Old Net Testament, Old Covenant, or New Covenant, the truth is the same. It is with the shedding of blood that there is forgiveness of sin. Fortunately, as Hebrews so clearly explains to us, we don't have to go through the process of, of animal sacrifice because Christ made that sacrificed once and for all in His blood, which we accept by faith. We don't have to actually literally see the blood of Christ. Even though, as you know, in, in the higher liturgical churches, they do believe that in the Eucharist that the wine is converted into the blood of Christ. We don't have to see the blood of Christ in order to have its cleansing because it's taken by faith. That's why faith plays, plays such a huge role in our walk with God. David prayed that all of his iniquities would be blotted out. Through Isaiah, God would say later to Israel, I am the one who blots out your transgressions for my own sake, and I will not remember your sins. Why does he blot out our transgressions? For our sake? No, for his own sake. For his own sake. This satisfies his justice because His blood takes away the sin that otherwise requires justice of us in the payment of our blood for our sin, which would never pay for it anyway, because it would not atone. The question that might be asked is, how can a, a God of justice simply blot out sin, especially sin of one who had, created, who had committed such heinous sin as David? You know, to take a woman... In, in adultery, and then murder her husband, and then cover the whole thing up in, in spite of the fact that he was the king of Israel and, and the sweet singer of Israel and, and a man after God's own heart. How could he do that? And then God just blot out his sin. Well, I think there's an answer for us in the second chapter of Colossians. 
Colossians chapter 2, reading at verse 13. When you were dead in your transgressions and the uncircumcision of your flesh, he made you alive together with him, having forgiven us all our transgressions, having canceled out the certificate of debt consisting of decrees against us and which was hostile to us. And he has taken it out of the way, having nailed it to the cross. When he had disarmed the rulers and, and authorities, he made a public display of them, having triumphed over them through him. So all of us were forgiven of our sin while we were in the midst of our transgression. None of us got ourselves cleaned up. And then he said, now that you're clean, I will accept you or I will cleanse you or some other such thing. He takes us as filthy and dirty and awful as we are and cleanses us and makes us clean by the blood of Christ. By his own mercy and compassion, absolutely dependent on nothing from our part, he even gives us the faith to believe that that is true. If we read on in Psalm 51, should have had you keep your finger there, maybe you did. Psalm 51, reading on at verse 10. Create in me a clean heart, O God, and renew a steadfast spirit within me. Do not cast me away from your presence, and do not take thy Holy Spirit from me. Restore to me the joy of thy salvation, and sustain me with a willing spirit. Then I will teach transgressors thy ways, and sinners will be converted to thee. Deliver me from blood guiltiness, O God, thou God of my salvation. Then my tongue will joyfully sing of thy righteousness. O Lord, open my lips, that my mouth may declare thy praise. For thou dost not delight in sacrifice, otherwise I would give it. Thou art not pleased with burnt offering. The sacrifices of God are a broken spirit, a broken and a contrite heart, O God, thou wilt not despise. By thy favor do good to Zion, build the walls of Jerusalem. Then thou wilt delight in righteous sacrifices, in burnt offerings and whole burnt offering. Then young bulls, bulls will be offered on thine altar. One of the things that comes very, very clear to us as we read this psalm was that David was humbled by all of this. I mean, he was on his face before God. He knew he had nothing to offer to God. He had no excuse to give to God. And so he cries out, Create in me a clean heart, O God, and renew a steadfast spirit within me. He had failed from being the steadfast man he had been for so many years as he was chased from pillar to post by Saul through the wilderness. He was steadfast in his spirit before the Lord. And now that he is king, he allowed this huge sin to crop up in his life and his steadfastness was shattered and, and he for a whole year rejected the working of God in his life. He in this chapter alludes to no worth in himself. No worth in himself. He casts himself completely on God's mercy because he has no worth in the sense that he has worth by which God has to accept him. It's one of the hardest things for humans to accept. We are very, by nature, we're proud. By nature, we think we are somebody. And unfortunately, religions of the world, almost all religions of the world, are based on 
developing worth in the eyes of the deity, whatever the deity is. You, you have to do these things to make the deity happy with you and, and accepting of you. But one of the things that comes true throughout Scripture is there's nothing we can do to make God happy with us in order for him to give us his salvation. Once we have salvation, then it is incumbent upon us to walk righteously before him and to serve him faithfully and to, by our works, express the truth of that salvation which he has given to us. But no good work will bring salvation to us. He knew that he had sorely grieved the Holy Spirit and feared that God would remove his spirit from him as he had Saul. And he knew all about Saul. He knew what had happened to Saul and how Saul had rejected God and turned his back and gone his own way and, and God had removed his Holy Spirit from him. And David knew firsthand the tragedy that that brought into Saul's life. Saul's life just spiraled downhill until he died tragically on Mount Gilboa that one day at the hands of the Philistines along with all of his sons except one. David didn't want that fate for himself. So he cried out to God to not take his Holy Spirit from him. Again, the prophet Isaiah would be given the word of the Lord to speak that relates to us here in the 63rd chapter of Isaiah. Isaiah 63, beginning at verse 7. I shall make mention of the loving kindnesses of the Lord, the praises of the Lord, according to all that the Lord has granted us, and the great goodness towards the house of Israel, which he has granted them according to his compassion, according to the multitude of his loving kindnesses. For he said, Surely they are my people, sons who will not deal falsely. So he became their savior. In all their affliction he was afflicted. And the angel of his presence saved them. In his love and in his mercy he redeemed them, and he lifted them and carried them all the days of old. But they rebelled and grieved his Holy Spirit. Therefore he turned himself to become their enemy, and he fought against them. Then his people remembered the days of old of Moses. Where is he who brought them up out of the sea with the shepherds of his flock? Where is he who put his Holy Spirit in the midst of them, who caused his glorious arm to go at the right hand of Moses, who divided the waters before them to make for himself an everlasting name, who led them through the depths like the horse in the wilderness, they did not stumble, as the cattle which go down into the valley. The Spirit of the Lord gave them rest. So didst thou lead thy people and make for thyself a glorious name. You'll notice that passage tells us some very significant things that Yahweh is our Savior. If Yahweh is our Savior and Jesus is our Savior, remember your math. If A equals B and A equals C, B equals C. <laughs> so if Jesus is our Savior and Yahweh is our Savior, Jesus is, of course, Yahweh. And he talks about grieving his Holy Spirit here. And when, when they grieved his spirit, God turned away from them. And then it tells us why it's so important to have the truths of the scripture often repeated, because then they remembered. Ah, but what did God do for Moses? He carried them through the water and through the wilderness. Why isn't it happening to us? And then they repent and they return to God. Unfortunately, our lives are almost like the yo-yo of Israel. 
you know, up one day and down the next, and up one day and down the next. But God is, is faithful in the midst of all of that, and he is, he is never changing, and that we can be grateful for. It is possible for you and for me to grieve the Holy Spirit as well. In Ephesians 4, verse 30, we read these words, Do not grieve the Holy Spirit of God, by whom you were, see, were sealed for the day of redemption. Do not grieve the Holy Spirit of God. Paul also warns us in, in 1 Thessalonians chapter 5 to not quench the Spirit. So we can grieve the Spirit and we can quench the Spirit of God, the Holy Spirit who dwells within us. David quenched the Spirit of God when he refused for nearly a year to listen to the still, small voice of the Spirit that was saying to him, David, you must repent and return to me. You have sinned grievously. He rejected it. He wouldn't listen to it. He, he plowed ahead with his life. He, he turned up the radio and the television and anything to make noise so he couldn't hear the Spirit of God speaking to him. He had grieved the Spirit by his sin, and now he quenched the Spirit by saying, God, I don't want to hear it. And you and I can do the same thing because when we sin, we grieve the Spirit of God. And then when we refuse to repent and we don't want to hear about it, we quench the Spirit of God. Now, if we have truly been born again and transformed so that we are a child of God, the quenching of the Spirit is not going to cause him to remove his Holy Spirit from us because the scripture, as we read, tells us that that is our seal for the day of redemption. But, it, but we may not, he may not be removed from us, but we are cut off from his blessing and cut off from his power in our lives. And the tragic thing is we're left exposed to the consequences of our folly. To me, that's one of the scariest things around. During that year when David was pushing God away and, and insisting that he was okay, I mean, he was exposed. There was, there was no God there to defend him. Not that God wasn't around, but God wasn't going to defend him. God was going to allow him to pay the price of his sin. And so that is the tragedy uh, for us when, when we grieve the Spirit and then we quench the Spirit by refusing to listen to his voice telling us to repent we're exposed to the consequences of it. And uh, there are many people who, who claim, at least claim to be born again Christians, and, and if we believe them, you know, who are in prison today because they've been exposed to the folly of their sin and uh, it's, they've, they've paid the price for it. In Psalm 51, verses 12 to 13, where we read, Restore to me the joy of thy salvation and sustain me with a willing spirit. Then I will teach transgressors thy ways, and sinners will be converted to thee. This helps us to understand that it is the presence of the Holy Spirit in our lives that gives us joy. We will never have joy in our lives unless the Spirit of God is dwelling within us. Oh yes, people out in the world make it look like they're having a good old time. But you discover if you look in with detail, they're not having a good time at all. They're in misery and they're in pain. And this is expressed, of course, by the tragedy of so many high-profile lives. Joy comes only from the indwelling Holy Spirit. True joy, joy of salvation, and, and the willing spirit to be obedient to God. You and I cannot obey God except the Spirit of God enables us to do it. Period. End of argument. 
You and I cannot go out there and do God's will by our own strength. Forget it. It can only happen by the power of the indwelling Holy Spirit. And of course, therefore, it is only in that condition that we can preach the gospel, as it were, and we can demonstrate the truth of God that others will be drawn to Christ because they see in us the joy of our salvation and they see in us the willing, obedient spirit that comes by the power of the Holy Spirit. That's why preaching the gospel without the presence of the Holy Spirit is a big waste of time. Oh, I'm not saying that nobody ever came to Christ in spite of the fact somebody was, was preaching uh, whose heart was wrong because God can do anything but that's not the way to have a fruitful ministry. In verses 16 and 17 of this psalm, For thou dost not delight in sacrifice, otherwise I would give it. Thou art not pleased with burnt offerings. The sacrifices of God are a broken spirit, a broken and contrite heart, O God, thou wilt not despise. This gives us true insight as to what are the sacrifices that God accepts. What are true sacrifices? Well, relig when religion becomes institutionalized, as it has in many instances that I don't have to name because you can think of them yourself, many believe that their standing before God is based upon their performance. Performance of rituals. Performance of certain duties. You, you've got to do this. You've got to go through this ritual. You've got to do this every week. You've got to do this or you are not accepted before God. You now, there are rituals that have meaning to some people in particular. But at very best, they are surface manifestations of the true sacrifices of, for God, which are a broken and contrite spirit. That is a sacrifice God never rejects. He always accepts it. And without that, the other sacrifices have no meaning. They have no meaning. They're useless. As we see in verses 18 and 19, it is only after true sacrifice has been made, the, the broken spirit and the contrite heart, that God delights in the other sacrifices. Then you can bring your bull, your sheep, your ram, whatever it is, and make the sacrifice according to the law. Then it has meaning, but without the broken and contrite spirit, you might as well save the life of the animal because it's not doing anybody any good. Every day, you probably have noticed, at least I have in my own life, every day we are prone to sin, either in thought, word, attitude, something we do. If our prayer for repentance gets a little bit stale, this is a good place to turn to. You know, if we get tired of saying, oh, Lord, I goofed up again. Help me. Just be gracious to me, O God, according to your loving kindness, according to the greatness of your compassion. Blot out my transgression. It's not only beautifully worded, it's powerfully worded. So it's an example to us, and, and of course, it highlights our need, and it also underscores God's willingness. It's like he's anxious. He's there waiting. Please ask me so I can forgive you. I want to forgive you. It's not like God is up there. And this is one of the most tragic things I can think of. You know, in the days of Martin Luther, when Martin Luther was raised in Germany, probably most of you know that Martin Luther studied, well, originally he studied law, but then he switched over to uh, theology. And he earned a doctorate in theology, and he was a monk and priest in the Roman Catholic Church. But one of the tragedies of that day was the belief that 
you had to intercede with Mary. You had to go to Mary and say, please, oh Mary, will you please tell your son that I'm sorry and make his wrath go away? It was a view that God was up there like a lightning bolt, almost like Thor of the, of the uh, ancients, ready to you know, ram you through and nail you to the wall rather than a God of mercy who is, who is just wanting to pour out his forgiveness. I mean, it's so wrong. And that's what happens when you get away from the Scripture and you chase off into the traditions of mankind and, and you, 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 you play consort with the, with the religions of the world and, and you follow their ways rather than the way of Scripture, which is so radically different from every other single teaching relative to religion, if you like to use that word. Here we have it underscored that God is willing to forgive us. He wants to forgive us. And he wants to create in us a clean heart. Even if he has to do it hour by hour, he wants to do it. You, you probably have run into the problem I have, and that, you know, after a while you, you, kind of get, you, you almost feel like you don't want to go to God and say, oh, God, you know, I messed up again. He knows that. In fact, he knew how many times you would mess up before he even saved you. To me, that's, that's profound. And... Um, that's why this whole idea of, of being able to lose your salvation is so contrary to Scripture. Because he knew what you would do before he ever saved you in the first place. I mean, God's not dumb. Oh, I wonder what this person would do if I save him. Oh, you know, he, he might be a jerk. <laughs> he knows. He knows. And he saves us. And he wants us to keep coming before him. As long as we are sincere, God never tires of the penitential prayer. And His mercy is limitless, infinite. We, we don't grasp infinite. That's why we always think that space has got to have an end out there somewhere. Somewhere, if you go out far enough, there's a wall. You know, because we, we just can't grasp infinite, infinity. But that's who God is. He is infinite. Well... Ooh, I better stop. I had a couple of other psalms I wanted to inject just briefly here before we finish off uh, the 12th chapter of 2 Samuel because it kind of shifts gears and goes into another uh, event.